A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Silmarillion stories, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for Valaquenta, the second story in the Silmarillion. In this episode, we'll be talking about a couple of brief concepts from the reading before diving into its themes with Tolkien scholar Marilyn R. Pukila. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to LOTR at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. Episodes will be released one per month towards the end of each month. If you're enjoying our coverage of Silmarillion stories or any of the other shows we're covering, and you'd like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash thelorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. Of course, you can always find all of our ad-supported episodes in our public feed. Just search for Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice. And one more quick ask. Please take a moment and rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can, because it helps us play the long game on Apple Podcasts, and it helps us get our podcast in front of more people, which helps us make more podcasts. So next month, we'll be covering Kaleidoscope on Netflix and doing another Silmarillion stories, but more on that in the outro. Okay, David, let's get into our overall thoughts on this reading. So this is your first time reading this passage, as it is your first time reading the whole Silmarillion. So... It is true. This is a big begot section, right? So yeah, yeah. what did you think overall? Honestly, uh, this one, I'm glad that you turned me on to the audible version of the Silmarillion stories, because I think trying to read this, I, I would have had a tough time making it through to the end. Um, the audio version was great, and it really gave me a sense of the depth and complexity that Tolkien was creating with setting up this pantheon, if you will. And it was. It was just a lot of who's and, and whom's and begats and begots and who's married to who and where their sort of responsibilities lie. Um, I, you know, I, I can see why it's an important part, um, and it sets up a lot of the factual information, if you will for yeah. you know what you need to know going into it. But yeah, otherwise it was a little bit more of a, a checklist rather than a in you know <laughs> engulfing right. in you know gripping story. We are literally before the beginning of time right now. Right. And so nothing has happened really. I mean a lot has happened kind of, but because we're reading the history as written by the elves later, 
We just don't know exactly how events happened between the Valar. And so, again, like you mentioned, the audiobook with Martin Shaw narrating really brings it to life. So if you're having trouble getting through this, I recommend it. It is a great way to sort of kick yourself back into gear with the Silmarillion. And again, we'll still be outlining the basics here. And the yeah. good news is because there is no plot to this section, basically, this is going to be a very short summary. And then right. we're going to go into our really deep conversation with Marilyn Pekila. I think my strategy going forward is to to both read the chapters and listen to the book. I just in my daily pattern, walking, you know, walking around the house, doing the different various domestic jobs that I have to do and, you know, the household things. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of audio. Uh, a lot of podcasts. And so I think that'll help me. But then I also like having the book in front of me. So as we're prepping and, and talking about it, I can, you know, jump in on certain passages and stuff like that. So I think that's my dual strategy going forward. That sounds good. I mean, I have found that each time I read The Silmarillion, I get more out of it. And it's because I know the major plot points. Uh huh. And so now I can go, okay, but how did it happen? Right. And that's really hard to do when you're trying to get all the bagots in your head. Right. So let's boil it down a little bit. I have literally two points I want to emphasize out of this reading. The rest of it, sure, reference the book if you want to know all the Valar. You can memorize them if you really want. I don't have them all memorized, so. I'm sure there's some resources out there on the internet, some PDFs you could download and right. <laughs> flow charts and such. Right. But they're, they're listed in order in the book, so I'm not going right. to go just regurgitate that now. So here's the two main points out of this passage. There are two classes of holy beings here besides the creator god. There are the Valar, the powers of the world, who are, you know, the most powerful ones. They govern the, the earth, they govern Arda, and they are, you know, the creators of this world, really. They do the work of creation. And then there are the lower class, which are sort of their helpers and sort of agents of the Valar, who have some will in it too, but are less powerful and less uh, influential. And those are the Maiar. Okay, so, and then did they have a different name before they came down from the celestial heavens onto Arda? The Ainur yes. is the name of the bigger group that includes both the Valar and the Maiar. Okay. And so that was all of the, all of the people, all of these holy beings that were in that music of the Ainur we talked about in the Ainulindalei, those are the Ainur. Right. That's why it's the music of the Ainur. And then when they came down to Arda, we sort of got a more specific name being the Valar. Is that correct? Right. So those are the powers. Got it. And then the Maiar, they're are helpers like Gandalf and such. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they're still holy beings. They're of a lesser degree. Right. Different power level. Right. Yeah. And so that's all you really need to know out of this creation portion. Right. The other part is I wanted to highlight a few really important figures we're going to see going forward. Okay. So we already talked about Melkor, right? We talked yeah. about this big bad who is starting off not so bad and slowly going a little more nuts, getting a little bit more discontent and causing discord. So he's going to be a major player going forward. If you watch the Rings of Power, he's called Morgoth there. Can I D&D &D, draw a parallel D&D &D, uh, to, to Melkor and um, to uh, Sauron? Sure. Melkor seems to me in that D&D &D parlance to be of a chaotic alignment and to be like one of uh, a, a demon. So there's a class of monsters called demons and they're, they're chaos agents. They just 
crazy, rampant destruction, right? They're they're very reactive beasts, if you will. Yeah. And then they have there's another class called devils, and they're lawful. And they follow a plan. They think about things. They strategize. And they're not just out for ruin, uh, you know, for ruin's sake, but they have like some sort of evil intent and purpose. Melkor really seems to be in that sort of chaotic, demonic sort of classification to me. Just wild, bent on destruction, doesn't care, might have some scheming. But where you look at Sauron, and Sauron's like, that boy's crafty, literally <laughs> crafty, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and he's got a plan. Sauron wanted to rule. Right. And Melkor wanted to destroy. And right. Marilyn gets really deep into that, so I won't go too deep into it here. Cool. But it's uh, it's a really interesting way to consider how he was Sauron's boss, yet he was not the same kind of motivated character. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And also, I should mention that Sauron was name-dropped here as being part of the servants of Melkor. So we see that from the beginning, you have Sauron immediately aligning himself with this guy who is not totally in line with his motivations, but is similarly evil. Right, right. Okay, so there are three other people I want to highlight here. There is Manwe, who is the king of the Valar. He is the lord of all the earth. He is the one who controls the eagles that you see in the Lord of the Rings. He is the guy who sits upon a tall mountain. He's the Zeus, and he watches everything happen, and he governs. He's going to be a very important character going forward, as will Umo, who is mm -hmm. the water Vala, who is going to be a big part of delivering messages, of controlling the seas, etc., uh, you also have Aule, who My is Aule's smithing. Beard. Yeah, yeah, related <laughs> to the dwarves, we'll get into it. Yeah. Uh, but he is a smithing Vala, and he is also the Valar. He's the Vala who is attached to the Maiar, Sauron, and Saruman. Because something I should also mention is that each Maya usually, and Maya is the singular of Maiar, each Maya generally is attached to one of the Valar. However, that doesn't mean that they'll stay attached to them forever. Right. They got to have their boss that they pay up to. Right. Exactly. Now, I seem to recall like Manway was um, one of the Vala who had access to Eru Aluvatar's larger plan, where a lot of the Valar didn't kind have of. access, but he had a little bit more insight into it, and along with Melkor, if I remember that right. That's basically right. So Manway and Melkor have access to each part of Eru's mind, but Eru still kept the plans of the children of Iluvatar secret from everybody, including right. them. Okay, got it. So there's another meta level above Ma Manway and Melkor, but Manway and Melkor have the same level of knowledge of Eru. Right. And Melkor really was one of, was supposed to be very powerful and sort of chosen, but he went off on his own and went a little cuckoo. Right. Yeah. He probably could have been the leader of the Valar, as Marilyn gets into. Right, right. Okay, cool. All right. That all sounds good. Uh, I think I'm a little bit more clear on all of that now. Very cool. Well, that's a short segment, because we have so much to talk about with Marilyn Arpukila. We went long as usual, because we can't have a talk <laughs> with Marilyn that is short. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. And after that, we're going to get into some listener feedback.
And we're back. And with us is Marilyn R. Pukila, our favorite Tolkien scholar and librarian emerita. Marilyn, thanks for coming on to help me specifically with the pronunciation of Vala Quenta. Um, I think I might have been mooshing them together a little bit. I'm sure the Tolkien fans are, uh, they, lo- they must love me. Anyway, um, thanks for coming back. How are you? Good to, good to see you. And Happy New Year. <clears throat> Thank you. And Happy New Year to you, too. Because and, uh, this is coming out on New Year's Eve, if you didn't know that. Oh, that's right. That's right. I did <laughs> The know magic that. of yes. recording technology. Right. Right. So, yeah, uh, things have been good. And um, I'm really looking forward to talking about all these different beings and who they were and what they resemble in other worlds and cultures and uh, how they fit in to the... Yeah. The stories that we know. I was, um, you know, as the uninitiate here, um, as I was reading the Valaquenta and, and listening to it, I did a little uh, audiobook uh, rendition of it, too, to help me uh, speed things along. I was like, wow, there's a lot going on in here. And it's a lot of, you know, inventory listing and who's whom and who's, you know, married to whom and things like that. And I, I knew... That if you know, like, there's a lot going on here, but as like somebody who's not connected with the deeper roots of it, I was like, okay, I just got to just take this on board and then look forward to this conversation where we could start to pull up some of the roots and influences and other things in the conversation with you. So I certainly hope we can uh, make some sense of all of this. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. In this reread, I realized that there's a number of places where, um, you actually get some answers to perennial questions that people ask, such as, why don't the Valar take a more active role? That's a good question. In the unfolding of, of the stories of Middle-earth, or uh, why is it that creators often wind up in so much trouble, and, you know, things like that, which right. you can skim over it really easily and not notice it, but if you already have the knowledge of the stories as they unfold, then to come back and read this. I think you can get some interesting insights. Right, right. You can get lost in the bagots really easily, as you like to say, David. <laughs> yes. This is a lot of bagots, a lot of really early Bible, really early Torah uh, kind of issues with the reading here. But if you can get through that and you can sort of ground yourself in some of these bigger ideas and see the forest instead of the trees then you can get to some of the heart of it. So, Marilyn, can you answer that question for us? Why can't the Valar take a bigger role in shaping the history of Middle-earth and and fighting for good? Sure. The the main point to make here is that the Valar are not gods or deities. They're created beings. They're offspring of Iluvatar's thought. As such, they seem very similar to pantheons that we're familiar with. I mean, anybody who's read Neil Gaiman's Norse Gods will know that, you know, he goes chapter by chapter and talks about all the individual deities. So, you've got the Greek and Roman pantheon, you have the Norse pantheon, and Tolkien puts in a little comment here that their names among men are manifold. So, what he was aiming at was this idea of bridging between his mythology and the mythologies that rose in the world. But of course, as a Roman Catholic, as a Trinitarian, as he would put it, he's not going to create a world that is not monotheistic. So, in the end, there's only one God, and that's Iluvatar. 
But what we have here are what you could call demiurges. This comes from Plato, from Platonic theory and, and subsequent theory. He described it in his Timaeus. They're not creators of new things, right? Only Eru can create the new things, but rather shapers of stuff which has already been created. That reminds me of what we were talking about on the Ina Lindelay podcast, which is alteration versus interpretation. Exactly. It was a great line. So if you think of them as artisans who fashion and maintain the universe, that's really what their role and purpose is. And this is very, very much in line with Tolkien's concept of sub-creators. You know, this is a thread that runs through virtually all of his writings, that the one God as he sees it is a creator God, and therefore all of his creations must also create in some fashion. Not originally, because a created being can't create anything originally new, but they shape, they form, um, they bring forth new material, but they don't ever actually create something individual. So their role was to prepare the physical world for the children of Luthar to inhabit. It was not their role to protect them or make them safe. So expecting them to influence affairs of sentient beings who are, let's remember, fellow sub-creators, because they're also taking the stuff of the world and making new stuff, that's taking them beyond their job description. And the times when they do exceed that mandate, notably, quote-unquote, inviting the elves to Valinor, don't usually end very well. That's kind of, if you want to think of it this way, that's kind of the fall of the Valar. And if you remember, or we haven't gotten to that part yet, but we will come to a part where they take this decision and Mandos, the doomsayer, says, so it is doomed. You know, good old Mandos, he never says that, he never puts his opinion in, but he always expresses it after the decision has been made. <laughs> Mandos is my favorite. He's just, he's just chilling. He, uh, I, I feel like there's a world where we have like sort of the Disney Hades kind of Mandos, where right. he's just like joking around. Uh, but no, what I, I guess one of my favorite things about Mandos is just that he's so compassionate when he wants to be. Right. Uh, when when the when the time comes for compassion being needed, and I think he rises above the level of most of the other Valar in that. Uh, besides, I, I know you're going to talk about Nienna uh, tonight, um, and I think that uh, Umlo has a lot of compassion as well. But yes. I think that Mandos ha is often overlooked as one of the most compassionate of the Valar. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely more compassionate than than his Greek and Roman form of of Hades. Yeah. Can I ask this idea of creators and sub-creators and who can create and not, what are the the mythic and religious concepts? Where where does where do those what's the origin of those ideas? Because I don't I can't recall any other authors that I've read, and that's not to say anything, it's just that I personally have not seen it laid out in this specific way other than in Tolkien's. The way that he's wording it and the way that he's relating to it, I don't seem to hear or see that anywhere else in science fiction and fantasy literature directly. Yeah, I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. I think this is one of his 
if not unique, certainly unusual uh-huh. contributions to the genre. But it was because it was a core part of his own personality. Right. I'll say I think Sanderson, I think Brandon Sanderson sort of toys a little bit with the idea of lesser beings that are so often looked at like gods, um, especially in his Mistborn series. Mm. But And I haven't gone into his Stormlight Archive, so he might go deeper there. But I think that that's the closest thing I could think of, and it's really not analogous. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it something that comes out of his, I mean, obviously a lot comes out of his Catholic faith, but a lot also doesn't because he was studying and reading, you know, so many other things. So is, is this a synthesis? Did he actually create something? Well, the saints come marching in as well. You know, I just, I, you know, he's a Catholic. They've got their saints. They've got they've got angels going sure. on. So I, I, I sure do in think terms that, of pattern and structure, yeah. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. And obviously. Tolkien loved him his hierarchies. So you know, we see okay, if you're right. frankly, what I'm thinking of is tikkun olam. Tikkun olam, which is an obligation to better the world, which. Clearly needs our help. Was was Tolkien familiar with this? This is this is a Jewish concept. It is a Jewish concept. I don't know where he might have come up to it, but we've talked before about how he envisioned the dwarves as being some reflection of of the Jewish people, which, as we've said, has its problems. But that would say to me that there was some sense of that. Certainly, his Old and New Testament history, as he would see it, was pretty well grounded. So. I, I I think it was probably a familiar concept to him. But even going back to, you know, the biblical be fruitful and multiply, name the animals, you know, there is that sense of human beings are given a responsibility to care for the earth. Sure. A- and be kind to the stranger, be, mm-hmm, you know, the, mm-hmm. a, a real responsibility of taking care of each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so for him, he came to understand that the act of creation was an imitation of what he saw as God, and therefore was a gift to offer, and in a sense, continuation of that work at a lower level, if you will, because you know he's mm-hmm. he's not assuming that kind of deific role, although in his own world he was more or less the deity, right? Because he was the creator, he was doing all these things, and. He brought in an awful lot of his own understanding of human morals and and religious obligation and all the rest of that. And toward the end of his life, he often got letters from from people, especially from religious people and Catholics in particular, who said, "How can you make the orcs? Isn't that a violation? You know, if if they're sentient beings, they can't be irredeemable." And so, you know, right. all those kinds of conundrums, which towards the end of his life, you know, began to kind of eat away at him a little bit. But in this inception, you have Eru singing the song, the Valar, all the Ainur joining in as a means of elaborating upon it, if you will, or bringing it to fruition. It was only a song, and then it was Eru who said, hey, I'll let these things be. Mm-hmm. So the vision was translated into material reality. But when the Ainur arrived, they just discover, and then by arriving, they become the Valar. They say, oh my gosh, this is a mess. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do. We got to fix this. And, and that is the demiurge concept. There's an awful lot more Plato in Christianity than people realize. 
does an awful lot of a lot of things that people don't realize. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, don't let's not get started on that one. <laughs> but this whole uh, concept of Plato, of, of the demiurges, you know, the shapers, the changers, the molders, that was their task. But the thing is, they have to fulfill the vision that they've seen, which is Aya, the created world. They never saw a vision of the children. They had no right. idea. He kept that from them. That's right. That was Aorus yeah. alone. They had no idea when they would come, what they would look like. And they were very eager because they were very much wanted to see beings that were other. So this is kind of flipping on its head. Our usual human instinct is to mistrust the stranger. In this case, the Valotters are saying, no, we can't wait for them to come because they view them as like younger sibs. So in in my head canon a little bit, it's um the Ainur the these um these connected aspects to Eru, right? Whereas the children of Eru are actually brand new creations that are not part of the 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 aura of Eru, right? These are other things that are outside of the the way that the Ainur are connected to Eru, right? And so for them to be able to see for the for Ainur to see then the children, like, whoa, like that is something we've never seen before. We've done all this stuff, we've sang all these songs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but here's this creation that just is completely outside of us and is independent and uh, um, by itself in a way. Independent and yet part of the song. The children, well, the children, part of the, well, yeah. the children were part of either the second or the third theme, depending on how it you was the third. It. We had feedback and and, yeah, uh, it's definitely we, we the went third. back and forth. We, we looked it up, so I, I can I can confirm it as a third theme. Well, I, I think it's the third theme as well, but some people kind of hang out for the second as the elves and the third are humans. But I think they're both in the third theme myself. But the point being, I could see how the Ainur and then the Vala, you know, are like, whoa, this is like, right? This this is not part of our our interconnected. However, we were all interconnected to Eru. These things exist in this other state in this other form. So that's got to be wild. That's going to be mind-blowing for them. Right. And yet, the elves are more similar to them than humans are. Humans are right. almost completely right. other. And right. so that's why, you know, after seeing what happened when they tried to intervene with the elves, they just decided, no, we're leaving humans strictly alone. Moreover, <laughs> the humans have this gift of leaving Arda altogether. The Valar are tied to Arda until the end, as are the elves. Right. What do, what do they call it? Serial longevity or something? Isn't For the elves, the, yeah. yeah. Right. That's what the Prancing Pony guys, I think. I've, I've heard them right. refer to that. Right. They, they and others. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I didn't know the source, so I didn't want to attribute it. That's right. where I heard it. Right. Right. So, they view them as beings who are of the same type as them, but on a different level, as it were. But not parent-child, more like, you know, right. big sib, younger sib. So, Marilyn, let's get into a couple specific Valar. Okay. You are a huge fan of Nienna. I am. Can you talk about her and how you feel about her and why you feel that way about her? Sure. Um, I want to start by backing up a little to the Book of Lost Tales. Sure. Because that was the very, very first time he wrote about the Middle Earth, about Valar, about his legendarium. And it was very different from what it eventually turned out to be. So, Nienna and her earliest form 
was what I call a goth Persephone. Oh. She was very similar to Persephone in that she dwelt in the underworld. It was dark. She was married to Mandos. Her, the roof of her hall was made of bats' wings. She had a single coal upon the hearth, and it was all very dark and very gloomy and very cold, as she was herself. Can we just, just for those who might not be up on their, their Greek uh, mythology, mm-hmm. Persephone was the queen of the underworld. Mm-hmm. And what else, what are the other kind of couple key things that we might want to know when you're talking about a, a goth version of Persephone? What are a couple of things that we should know about Persephone that would help us understand what you mean by that phrase? Mm-hmm. Well, Persephone was the daughter of Demeter. Demeter was sort of the Greek equivalent of Yavanna. She was the goddess of the earth, the fertility of growing things. And Persephone, her daughter, was kidnapped by Hades and taken to the underworld. Right. Um, And because she thoughtlessly ate some seeds of the pomegranate before she was restored, uh, Demeter basically went on strike and said, nothing's going to grow on earth until my daughter comes back. Um, Uh And so... She returned, but because she'd eaten some food of the dead, she was required to stay there for, you know, one month for each seed she'd right. eaten. She has to go back. Right. <clears throat> so back this is forth. where you get the seasons. And as you say, she goes uh, back and right. forth. Beyond that, in the Greek uh, story, she doesn't have a lot of, of uh, well, she doesn't have a lot of agency, for one thing. Um, right. But her name means the destroyer, which is kind of interesting. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty goth. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so... What makes Nyenna goth, she was called Fuidiana, and Fui means darkness. So Tolkien was really drilling down on this aspect because he was writing about this immediately after the experience in the First World War. He, of course, was an orphan. He'd lost both his father and his mother. He had an awful lot of death in his life. And in his early years, you know, was obviously coping with it as best he could, but I think you trace Nienna's trajectory and you see Tolkien's own trajectory to understanding Nienna not as a punisher. Initially, again, in the Book of Lost Tales, uh, she was the judge. She was the one who decided a human um, ultimate destination. You know, some of them actually got to go to Valinor. Uh, some, of them, some of them were shipped off to Morgoth. And most of them wound up in this gray land, which is very reminiscent of a poem that Tolkien wrote describing um, men gathered around a campfire during World War I, which is pretty much uh, reminiscent of uh, purgatory. Wow. And Christopher comments on how here we have in this story, which already he has said death is a gift to humans, and yet you've got a very Catholic you know, heaven, purgatory, hell kind of a situation going on. How did he get from this, like you said, extremely Catholic, very strict rule-based, St. Peter is going to let you in or not, to what he gets to where, I mean, I guess we don't know where men go after they die, but it seems like Tolkien hammers down that it's a positive thing over and over again. Like, it does seem like Mm -hmm. all men go to somewhere mildly pleasant. (laughs) How does he get there? Well, I think this is a reflection of his own struggle through decades with this question of 
how can a good and loving God allow your mother to die when you're 12 years old? Why, how, why is death anyway? I mean, he had the, you know, the usual explanation of, of sin and so forth, but it didn't track for him. And because his, also his world is, is pre-Christian, if you will, um, there wasn't the sense of sin salvation. So you still have to have some destiny for human souls when they die. And he had come to a place of seeing the love in God, the compassion in God, um, through the course of, of, you know, many decades of his own uh, grief and suffering, working with the loss instead of turning it aside. There were also a number of, of contemplatives in his life, um, a lot of sisters, the Sisters of Mercy were nursing him after the First World War, and he was connected with um, various nuns in the Oxford region while his children were growing up. And afterwards, he corresponded with a number of, of sisters who were very instrumental in, in, you know, in reading his work, but also his thinking. And I think he just, he came to this place of, we all experience loss. Loss is a part of life. Life came from God. God is good. Therefore, the thing to do is to recognize that this is part of the pattern. But that's why we have grief. That's the function of grieving. It's really fascinating to hear you say that, is that Tolkien is, through his mythology, through his, his own world, is doing the same thing that his friend C.S. Lewis is doing in The Problem of Pain and a lot of his other Christian apologetics. Definitely. Is, and, and, and I think you could see that even in, in uh, C.S. Lewis's fiction work, is, is Lewis will always spell it out for you, whereas yeah. Tolkien wants you to dig into his mind. <laughs> well, I think Lewis's finest example of that would be A Grief Observed. Mm. Because there he is, he's left his head, he's left his analysis, he's left his cognitive side. He's in the middle of the fire, his wife has died, He's lost his faith. He can't, con he just, and he says, what if it's all a great big lie? What do I do? How do I, and he, you see him processing in, I think, much the same way that Tolkien would have had to process these losses. And for Tolkien, one of the things that was healing of loss was enchantment. And so, he created these worlds so that he could himself be in them, recognize the enchantment and the healing that comes from that. Moreover, he, he very early on in his life um, de developed a very deep devotion to the Virgin Mary. And I think that was uh, supported by Father Francis Morgan who, and the Oratory Brothers. And over the course of his life, he talks about times when he fell away from his faith and then returned to it. And one of the names of Mary is Our Lady of Sorrows, mm. someone to whom people could pray to help relieve their pain, their loss. And this is what I think Nienna becomes. You know, she leaves behind the judgment and shifts from judgment in her heart to compassion in her heart. And she does this through the act of contemplation, you know, I, I always get frustrated when people talk about Nien as a buzzkill or standing off in the corner alone in the parties of Eleanor with a handkerchief and <laughs> all that kind of thing. Because 
you need contemplation, you need time, you need space to work through, not get rid of because you can't, you don't, but to come to a place of acceptance. So, Nienna is a contemplative, but joy and sorrow live at the same address. So, the more you are able to accommodate sorrow and loss, the more room you have for joy. It's just that she, her function was not to bring joy to Middle-earth. Her function was to listen to the cries of the elves who were in Mendos, their Fea were there. Mm -hmm. Albreth listens to the cries of the elves in Middle-earth who are housed in their Therfroa. But the unhoused elves who go to Mandos and are in the Halls of Waiting, they cry to her and she visits them there. So, this to me is the act of a compassionate person who is wanting to help people through their suffering. Now, how does Gandalf come into this? Because I know that there is a line in this reading that mm -hmm. Aloran, which is Gandalf's other name, is hanging out with Nienna all the time, and he's mm -hmm. learning from her. So, how does that come into play, if we can connect it a little bit to the Lord of the Rings story? Absolutely. So, yes, Oloran spent time with Nienna, and of her he learned pity and patience. So, you consider that he was a fiery spirit. Patience is probably a good thing, and pity. Think of how many times throughout Lord of the Rings, Gandalf talks about pity. He counsels pity. When Frodo first says what a pity it was that Bilbo didn't stab the vile creature when he had a chance, Gandalf's response is pity. It was pity that stayed his hand. Right. Pity and mercy, not to slay unnecessarily. And time and again, you know, when Frodo finally does encounter Gollum and he hears those very lines going through his head, he says, all right, I will not touch the creature because now that I see him, I do pity him. Right. And that was what saved him in the end. The chain of pity, really. You exactly. Know, it's this, it's this uh, passing down from Nienna through Gandalf all the way to Frodo, mm -hmm. and, and even through Bilbo, if we want to go that far. Definitely through Bilbo. I mean, even before Tolkien saw a clear connection between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. He knew that he was kind of sneaking in here and there, but, but that theme of pity and compassion, very central, and I tie it in, as I say, with, with his devotion to the Virgin Mary, so that, that uh, the text, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it says he's, at first Bilbo is thinking, I've got to slay this creature, I've got to get rid of him, I've got to get out of here, and then his thought was, no, it's not a fair fight, and suddenly pity welled up inside him as he thought about Gollum's life, his misery, his suffering, and so forth. I think that was a direct touch of Iluvatar at that point, myself. But, yeah, because at that point, Gandalf was, hadn't really, Bilbo hadn't had very much connection with Gandalf up to that point. You know, he knew about his fireworks when he was a young kid, and then he comes along and drags him into this adventure, and the Baggins side of him is appalled, and the Tookish side of him is excited. But they, in the movie, it's, I, I do, that's one of the things I like about the movie, is that they tie that in explicitly. You know, the, sometimes courage is knowing when not to take a life, but rather when to spare a life. So it makes me wonder what kind of um, compassionate acts Tolkien himself was on the receipt of 
as a young boy mm -hmm. who had sort of these, you know, double tragedies of losing his parents and then having to go into this situation as an orphan and being a, a ward of a of a, this, the priest and all of the other things that he went through. And I'm thinking of like what you said just a moment ago that, you know, the, the thought is occurring to me like, okay, so one of the greatest stories of literature that we have, of modern literature that we have, Lord of the Rings, the whole, you know, the whole thing, is born out of one man's grief and the loss that he experienced. Yeah. 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 The First World War touched off a love of fantasy in massive numbers of the soldiers who were actually in the trench. Uh -huh. They had copies of Peter Pan with him. They had posters of fantasy fairy tale type of things. And he himself says in a letter that a taste for fantasy was quickened by the Great War. So Interesting. that piece of it was there. The compassion piece, he was very clear, he got from Father Francis. Wow. And okay. said that, you know, that this man took up his family while his mother was still living supported her. He was able to do this because his particular order did not insist that they vow poverty or give up all of their possessions. And so, he was able to keep his family's fortune, which came from the, the Welsh-Spanish Welsh trade in, in, uh, in wine and spirits. And he spent a lot of his fortune supporting Mabel and then supporting the boys, supporting Tolkien through school. He became like a grandfather to Tolkien's children. And was a hugely important figure to Tolkien. So, I, that's where I would point to for that question of… So, then when we see the construction of the, of the Ainur and then the Valar, can we see, you know, these experiences coming through from him into these imbibing, into these character characterizations, I guess you could say? I think so. I don't know if you could match it one for one, but it's certainly an interesting headcanon to think of as the light is sort of shining through him, if you want to use that sort of shadow puppet thing, the things that he's mm -hmm. making shadows of on the wall mm -hmm. are coming from him, mm -hmm. that these are elements and experiences and thoughts and, ex you know, uh, um, uh, his understandings of the world based on orphaning, be, you know, being an orphan, growing up as he did, and then going through the experience of World War I. So, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, all the rest of his life, too. Because if you, the, the uh, Silmarillion was 60 years in the gestation. Right. Right. And if you look through at the history of Middle Earth volumes, you can look at specific points of revision and see the, the growth, the change that had happened. Wow. And right. you can tie that into events in Tolkien's life. You know, you can map it. I mean, it's obviously it's not an exact correspondence, but no, right, the yeah. time when he returned to the Silmarillion in the 30s, was around the time that he returned to his faith. And that's when we start to see these changes and this evolution in the end. Now, I, I traced this whole thing in, in, in an article that uh, got published in Amenhen this December. Um, so, if, uh, it's… Well, we can, we can link to that in the show notes. Right. I think you've got your, your, bio, your author bio pick page, whatever, is working now. So, we can it is. make sure we have a good link to it that. It is. Yeah. And that article is there, and it's, you can download it from that, from that place. So, right. The, the legendarium grew as he grew, and he was constantly infusing it with his life experience, but also the things that he learned, uh, his wisdom along the way. Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump back on something before we get too far off from here, that you were talking about something about grief a little bit before, and it really made me think, 
you heard our conversation with Maester Anthony, Anthony Ladon on um, on Andor yeah. for our our season wrap. And one of the things that we talked about with him was like, is Andor really? Is this the first science fiction in the Star Wars universe? And one of the things that we talked about it there was grief and or, or, or B two emo the the sort of seemingly sentient you know sidekick robot and. We talked about B2 Emo's uh, experience of grief because mm. his master, owner, whatever you want to call Marva, died. And so Anthony was saying, well, one of the things that we as human beings have is the ability to degrade our, me- our memories, degrade over time. So we can actually mm. compensate for grief and we can actually sort of restore ourselves and not be crippled by grief. Uh, in that way, because our memory is something. I mean, this is some. This is what we talked about. I'm not mm-hmm, saying that mm-hmm. this, it's, it's imperfect. It is, but it's, it's imperfect. Yeah. It's imperfect. So That's we, what so it we was. Lose. I remember. Yeah, yeah. And so I wouldn't. As we were just talking a little while ago about grief, it made me think of that conversation, and I uh, wanted to like mm-hmm. highlight that quickly before we yeah. got too far away from it. Well, I think I I experience it somewhat differently. I don't know that memories degrade. I think. Maybe that's my characterization. Sure. I, I no, no, I, 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 heard the, I, heard the, I heard the episode. I think that's a fair characterization of what was said. Right. Because our memory, the amygdala, is tied in with emotion. If you ever want to be able to memorize something for a test, try and tie some emotional kick to each of the items <laughs> right. that you're trying to memorize. Right. And these things are indelibly, I think, placed in our brains. And from my mind, recovering from loss and grief is not a process of excising those things. Right. It's a process of recognizing them and incorporating them in moving forward, knowing that you're going to go back. I mean, Christmas time is a time of memories. It's a time of anniversaries. And you're going to be put back into those times of loss as well. And so... The task is to learn to accept that as part of the whole. And I think to do that, contemplation, the sort of stepping back, not trying to erase it, but sitting with it as an event that is part of your life, is the way to move forward with it. So it's what they say for trauma survivors. Right. This is very modern PTSD uh, right, trauma, right. right. recovery. We want you to be able to remember it without reliving it. Right. Treat it like a memory, not a, a real, not li- a as lived event. experience. But, right. you know, I've talked to a friend recently who's uh, unexpectedly, their sister is now in hospice. And I was absolutely back three years mm. ago to when my own sister was in hospice. Right. So right. it that's just how it works. And the extent to which we can accept that and have it that's that's now part of my makeup. Right. And it's not good, it's not bad, it just is. That's what gives me the compassion and right. the experiential knowing to say, I understand from my experience, which will be different from yours. Do what you need to do, be gentle with yourself, don't worry about the you know. All those things we do. We humans love words. We want, in the face of pain and crisis, to use words to make it better. Doesn't work that way. Right. You know, Nienna doesn't go and give a lecture to the the elves and Nando's (laughs) about the power of positive thinking. Right. She goes and she listens. Right. Because they asked her to be there. 
modern psychological advice from from Tolkien's um, made-up secondary world here. <laughs> I think we're getting a human being who wasn't afraid to live his experience as deeply as he could because he could put it into a fantastical realm, mm -hmm. which helped him at one remove, but at the same time gave people another way of looking at it without confronting it directly. Well, how can you sustain this much passion and fervor and and uh and depth of thought and critique and conversation of a of this piece of literature right i mean if we we look out across the fandom around lord uh, rings of power the the passions that were ignited because something in this work is vital and and touches people in this way. Not sure passions was the right word, but uh, you you can. Okay. You can <laughs> oh, I think it was absolutely the right word. <laughs> but yeah, there's obviously something vital there that is that is speak. People are 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 feeling heard and seen and and feel like they can have a connection and a dialogue with this. These words that are written down on paper as such as they are, you know, how how do you maintain that? I mean, you go to the science fantasy shelf and use local used bookstore and it's just full of titles, right? And how many of them would never even in inspire this amount of uh intensity in the in, in a fandom like this. So yeah, I think he I think you're I think that's a great point is is that Tolkien's lived experience is in the writing directly mm -hmm. in some way. I think so. And and I've heard it said in many different contexts that the closer you come to your own truth, the closer you are to other people's truth. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we tend to think, well, if I'm really being true to myself and individualistic, then how could I possibly be like all these other people? Well, no, that's not the point. The point is, at the very most fundamental level, yeah. we have certain experiences that we all go through. Yeah. And, you know, for some people, elves and wizards and magic rings are a complete turnoff, and it's just not going to speak to them. So, there has to be a certain amount of willingness to go with, with the manner of presentation. Right. But the other thing is, because it is so deep to human experience, we can live with this text for, yes. you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, for lucky 80 years, because he lived with it for over 60 years. Right. And over the course of time, you know, as as I'm, you know, retired and, and continuing on the aging process, I relate a lot more to Bilbo than I ever did in The Lord of the Rings than I ever did when I was in my teens and 20s. Right. Reading the book. So there are there are people throughout the life course in these stories that you can, you know, connect to and and um Tolkien was being honest about his life experience. How often do we find that? And not shying away from the painful stuff. I mean, right. that's why the scouring of the Shire is so crucial. Let me derail this again. I think it's time. Go for it. Um, <laughs> Seriously, we've gotten off into this. Let's talk about Melkor. <laughs> let's talk okay. about Melkor. All right, here we go. He's the big bad of this thing, right? I think everybody pretty much knows Morgoth is the big bad of the Silmarillion by now. What happens in Tolkien's world if Melkor never becomes Morgoth? Because this story can't work unless Melkor was redeemable, right? And unless Melkor could have chosen to be aligned with Eru and the will of Eru. 
And I guess mm-hmm. in the end, Melkor does do the work of Eru. But as far as the discord of Melkor, what happens if Melkor is part of the Valar? Is it, I, I, I'm, I guess what I'm asking is, what was his intended role if it wasn't to be this Lucifer Satan type character, this fallen angel? I would say his intended role was to be the angel. Okay. His intended role was to be the first among the Valar. He was the most powerful. He and Manoe were coeval in the mind of Iluvatar. And this is sort of the, the grief of the fallen world in Tolkien's worldview. We don't know what beauties we lost by Melkor choosing to go in his own path. I would not say that Melkor was part of Eru's design. I would say that Eru, being Eru, was able to fold into his design all of the free choices of every single being. Right. From Melkor down to the smallest hobbit. And that's what the, the Prancing Pony guys call Spibimi. Spibimi. Shall prove but mine instrument. You talked about it, I think, a little in, in the last Silmarillion episode that you did. That, that's that's so funny though. I've never heard them use the uh, the the <laughs> acronym. little acronym. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can, it's on a T-shirt. <laughs> that's funny. Of course yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So that I mean that I think is one way of Tolkien's working out in his own mind. Again, how can a good and loving God allow for the horrible, horrible things that happen? And my understanding of how he explains it is. Eru's will can only be achieved by the free choices of people. And it's when choices are coerced that things run amok and people start choosing poorly. And Eru reserves the right to have Gollum drop the ring at just the right time and place for a creature named Bilbo Baggins to pick it up. Eru reserves the right to create creatures like the Hobbits. Yeah, you know, we don't really know where they came from. I, my personal theory is the Hobbits are Eru's, you know, secret plan to fight Melkor. <laughs> Sauron. <laughs> Ooh, but is that where, I mean, that's that totally gets into some rings of power uh, stuff there, I does. think, where we could see, With our hearts, you know. it does. even better than our feet. <laughs> you said it, John, not me. You said it. <laughs> but, but it's important. It's important because, you know, the ring is depicted in so many different ways. And again, that proves what a potent symbol it is. Mm. My understanding of how Tolkien saw the ring is it exacerbates the will to dominate. Mm-hmm. It's not addictive. It's not all-powerful. The Lord of the Rings is littered with people who could have taken the ring and didn't because they weren't interested in domination. That was what Melkor was interested in. Mm-hmm. He wanted to create realms of his own that he could dominate and shape as he wished. Now, he was already free to shape amazingly wonderful things along with everybody else. But he wanted to be Eru, basically. He wanted to be the prime creator. And, you know, that that role was already filled. So, this this makes me think of this line, but being alone... He had yet begun to conceive thoughts of his own unlike those of his Excellent. Brethren. Exactly right. It's a v- He was out in the in the void, in the void by, by himself, himself and he kind of went a little cuckoo. Well, this is a medieval trope. It's a very common medieval <laughs> okay. trope. 
Oh, is it? Those who go off into the wilderness are often suspect. Ah, the Blair Witch trope. Gotcha. Oh. Well, <laughs> the Blair Witch trope is, is looking back a ways. No, you, you live in a community. You are safer in the community. If you wish to isolate, then you have to get the blessing of the church. And some people do. That's where we get anchoresses and hermits. But if you're living off in the wild, that means you don't have a lord. You don't, you're not part of a chain of hierarchy, a chain of being. You're this radical free agent, and you're dangerous. So Gawain in the Green Knight, you know, the Green Knight lives alone in the forest, and he walks into uh, the court of Camelot one day, all dressed in green with his great big huge axe, and says, here, anybody wants to cut my head off? And somebody does. Gawain offers to do it. He's the nephew of Arthur. He's never had a quest. He's the newbie at the table. Perhaps he wants to prove himself. The knight picks up his head, picks up his axe, and says, right, now come to my place in the woods a year from now, and I'm going to cut your head off. And he does. I mean, he follows the quest. He's, he kind of almost slips, but doesn't. And so he survives the almost beheading. But the green knight is a wild creature. A creature, uh, he's green because he represents nature, he represents the untamed. So that's, that's just one of, of many examples. Side note, did you uh, enjoy the film adaptation? I never watched it. I, I, I don't like okay. horror. I, I was thrilled to hear that they, they brought in uh, St. Winifred because I have a love for Wales. I lived there for a year, I learned the language, and she is the, the beloved saint of, of the Welsh. And she does have a small role in the original story, but they kind of bigged it up. And I thought, oh, that's nice. I'm glad they did that. And I'm not going to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a really good imagination. I do not need it to be in any way led down a path. So (laughs) if I could ask, did Melkor end up with less power because he went off on his own? Because I'm just thinking when the Valar first go to Arda, they're in the center of everything, right? They're, They're in Middle Earth. They are uh, probably going to exert a lot more influence than if they had not been ousted by Melkor's nonsense. So, ostensibly, Melkor could have had leadership among the Valar, alongside Manwe, or even maybe above Manwe, and had a tremendous amount of influence on the doings of Middle-earth. That's right. That's right. But he yes. chose to go off on his own, and therefore relinquished that power, relinquished his mantle. Mm-hmm. And it's the same sort of thing what you're talking about earlier, that the only redeeming factor for Sauron was that for a time he served Morgoth. So that idea of servant leadership, again, a fairly Christian concept, um, but serving out of love the one who created you and having the privilege of assisting in the ongoing act of creation to bring about more beautiful and wonderful things. And Eutr says, and I will sit and listen and watch and enjoy your creation. That's the key for a safe creator, is to enjoy the act of creating itself, being free to give away what you have created, uh, not trying to hoard it. And that's the difference between Melkor and Alde, both of whom were creators and very strong creators. But Aule was willing to submit all he created to Eru, to the point of being willing in a very Abrahamic fashion to destroy his creation because mm-hmm. it was made outside of Eru's uh, domain. And Eru has to go, I walked away for five minutes, Aule. 
and you had a party, and it was it was not good. But he, but it, they made it work. They made it work. Well, and the thing is, Alvarez says, "I did it because I am your child. Mm-hmm. You have put the love of creation in me, and yes, I was impatient." So now we're back to Nienna, learning pity and patience. And so, should I not rather destroy these, this act of my presumption? And Eru says, look, they shrank away from your hammer. You didn't tell them to shrink away. I have given them life. But they're not going to come first. My children are going to come first. And there's so much of a of a you know an Ishmael Hagar kind of feeling in that yep. you know that the two peoples I mean yeah Tolkien knew his Old Testament as yeah. he would call it really yeah. pretty well so Melkor okay. definitely decreased in power and stature because he chose the path of domination and he had to keep constantly putting out his own energy to direct his servants, to dominate the lands that he was creating. Until the very end, he never left his castle. He was far weaker than he had been when he started. Now, of course, he's still a Bala, and, you know, as the elves learned, they kind of really can't overcome him on their own. But he was, in the end, able to be conquered and so forth. And so, yes, that, that idea of going off on your own. Now, again, back to Nienna. Nienna is also a solitary. But... She is listening to other people, and she's not, she's not drawn to creation so much as she's drawn to the beauty and the grief of creation. She starts crying at the very beginning of the song, almost the very beginning of the song, before Melkor even starts his riffs, because she foresees that this power of free will is inevitably going to lead to loss and to sorrow and to suffering. I guess Nienna knows solitude without isolation, right? Whereas that's a great way of putting it. Melkor would it. like to isolate himself within Thangaradrim and within Angband. And doesn't want to see anybody as, you know, his equal, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So needing the solitude to better be able to listen to and receive the griefs of others without letting it overwhelm you. And she's still fruitful. You know, it's her tears that water the mound for the two trees to grow initially. So she's working with Yavanna. It's just the two of them that create the most beautiful of all the creations of the Valar. And it's her tears after the trees are destroyed that bring forth the moon and the sun. And we forget these things. It, it, I think this is Tolkien saying, you know, grief is at the heart. And mm. it can be fruitful. It can be productive. Like it or not, it's part of our lives and we need to find a way to live with it and accept it. Not shun it. Hit but me with the acronym right. again. Yeah. Spibimi. <laughs> Spibimi. Spibimi. Shall prove but mine instrument. There you go. I, I think this this um this idea of uh, Nienna and Pit like it's there are in in the experience in a human experience, there are places where, oh you know, if I talk to a mathematician, uh, I'm gonna be confused in like five minutes when they start talking Me about too. higher math and you know, or talk to a, a physicist or, or, you know, 
somebody, a material scientist, I'm, I'm thinking of, of just high intellectual pursuits, or even just like, you know, a fashion designer who's, you know, who, who knows fashion from many decades and, and understands, you know, just people can go really deep and into subjects. And so it could be hard for me to intellectually um, identify with them. But yet when we get down to things like hunger, uh, grief, whatever, these are things that are very easily bindable. We can bind ourselves to each other very much so. And so this idea of pity and grief are, seem to be strong, potent ways for us to connect to the experience of other human beings. Because it's, it's easy for us to forget that there's another human being over there that I'm looking at, and they have a, a, a similar and yet different experience that I'm having. But we're still, you know, we're still of this, these biological creatures and mm -hmm. we're, we're, you know, our hearts are pumping and we're having a, a, a similarity, but on this intellectual and ego level, we, we can seem to be extremely different. But yet grief is something that can touch us all. And, and we've all experienced grief because that is the way of the world, right? We all have to have loss and pain. If we allow it in. Not everybody does. Right. The world right. does yes, not yes. encourage Agreed. us to do Agreed. this. And oh, by the way, I need that mathematician because they helped figure out how to use, you know, to make my iPad. And that fashion right. designer. <laughs> we couldn't be having this that's conversation. Right. That fashion that. designer yeah. adds beauty to my world. We are connected right. and we have needs for each other. And again, this is what the Valar show and those wonderful lines mm -hmm. when, you know, Melkor was doing his thing and, and Eru points out, look, Melkor has made inordinate heat and cold. The heat creates the, the steams and the clouds rise up. And now, Ulmo, you are closer to your brother Manwe of the air, who you love. And the inordinate cold makes the beauties of snow and the cunning work of frost. So the connections are also part of what makes us, and, and each of us with their sphere of, of knowledge and understanding. Um, bring about what he would call the affiliation of creation, you know, putting more leaves on the tree, <laughs> bringing more right, stories right. into the world. And, then, and one story that is absolutely beyond my comprehension speaks directly to the soul of somebody else. And that's fine, because I have a story that speaks to my soul, which may or may not speak to your soul. But as you say, David, the commonalities are there. We're still dealing with the same delights and challenges of living our lives. Well, and you can't, how do you measure, you know, your, how do I measure my grief against you don't. your grief? It's just grief. Absolutely do not. I do not believe in the pain Olympics. Right. It's, it's a dangerous, right. <laughs> it's a dangerous path to follow in my opinion. Right. And then we have what John was saying to, you know, asking a question about Melkor, it made me think of like, and, and what you just said, you know, creation begets creation and that that generosity you know like it it if you give your creation away freely even though we have to be working in this world that's a different question but like we're giving we're giving to each other it makes me think of the magic penny song you know which we used to sing in in Sunday school you know if you you have one you know you spend it and you'll have them rolling all over the floor but if you keep it if your mind you put it on patreon it, it's I not mean, going on. to grow <laughs> right exactly <laughs> for three dollars a month um but Melkor represents this sort of scarcity yeah. mindset, where it's a zero-sum game, and there's only there's only so much in the world, and I need to control it and own it and manipulate it and dominate it. 
versus a creation model where, hey, the more that we're all engaged and 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 having commerce with each other, then we're all going to be better off. And in the end, Melkor actually, Morgoth actually um, disintegrated into annihilation, into destructiveness. He no longer wanted to create. He he just basically wanted chaos and ruin and and right. You know, he wanted to be the only in the world. And in the end, he had a tantrum seriously and threw his toys all over the. <laughs> he had like a right, three year old his tantrum. toys all over right. the, the toy room. Sauron right. is different insofar as he didn't want yes. to destroy the world. But he did want to rule it. Sauron was into order and and so forth, and you know he trained under Aule the smith. So, to that extent, you know he was minimally less bad, but he still had that wish to dominate, and that ultimately is is the the worst possible approach because it means that you're hindering the free will that Elru Iluvatar um, uses to continue the ongoing unfolding of creation. Marilyn, I have one more serious question for you and then a fun one. So All my right. serious question is, you heard our Michael Livingston interview. Again, if, if, listeners, if you've mm-hmm. not heard this, uh, it's in the feed, go check it out. Really great conversation about the Wheel of Time and fantasy as a whole. So one of the things we talked about is this defense that Michael mounts in his book on fantasy as an academic discipline. Mm-hmm. You are someone in academia who focuses on Tolkien and, and fantasy. How do you feel about this argument, and how have you seen that change over your career? Well, I first started teaching Tolkien in 1984, and it was, interestingly, it was part of the jam plan, which was a, a four-week semester between the two full semesters. And that's supposed to be a time when people could do a quote-unquote experimental courses. Um, and it actually became a credit-bearing course for the English department because they knew that I was using sources, source materials. And so, um, a student could choose one of the medieval texts, and that would count towards the medieval portion of their required studies in, right? Over the course of the 35 years, the popularity of Tolkien kind of rose and fell. I, I definitely agree with Michael. It took a long time for the discipline to take on any kind of a an academic glow, if you will. People just have a hard time with imagination sometimes. There's a wonderful essay by Ursula K. Le Guin called Why Are Americans Afraid of Dragons? <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to read that. Yeah. It's great. I've, I taught it in a couple of courses. It's the whole thing of quote-unquote real life. I bought Earthsea, by the way, the first Earthsea book on your recommendation. Oh. So I'm going to. Ooh, John, I'm gonna okay, do we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to be talking. Soon. Oh, let's do a podcast on Earthsea. One of my favorite. Right. Yes. You heard it here <laughs> first. I'm in. I'm in. I'm absolutely in. I would love to do that. I remember reading those for the first time. I don't remember when I read them, and I was just so enchanted there you go. Uh, by them. They're so. So simple and so clean and I, I don't know, just so I just really vibed with them more than I did with Tolkien for for whatever reason. I would I've read Ursi probably four or five times more than I've read uh, Lord of the wow. Rings. I mean, I I think from a to get back to the to the question from the literary perspective, Michael's absolutely right. If you're going to throw out fantasy, then you got to throw out the Iliad and the Odyssey. You've got to throw out Beowulf. You got to throw out the Fairy Queen. You gotta, I mean. 
all of these pillars, as we call them, of literature, which are fantastical.、Mm-hmm. And Le Guin would argue basically what you're saying is you have to throw out imagination. It's this supposed conflict between quote unquote real life and fantastical life. But what we were just saying earlier is the good, the best fantasies are absolutely about real life. Exactly. Or they won't touch us, right? I mean, I found that fantasy and science fiction are often where I learn the most about myself, where I see characters、Absolutely. that speak to conflicts that I've had in life, where I、mm-hmm. see real discussions about the nature of good and evil, about what it takes to create a good society, about what it takes to be a good person faced with tough choices, and it's something that you know I I do enjoy literary fiction as well, but I just. There's nothing like the high of seeing someone, not just face a dragon, but decide how to face the dragon. You know, it's、yeah. it's it's all about the details, and I think that people often overlook that when they're considering fantasy. Well, and I would also ask the question: What exactly does one mean by "quote unquote" literary? Right. If you're talking、right. a style of writing, well, I, Tolkien certainly blows、sure. most people out of the water. Yeah, I'm using it as the、uh, colloquial. If you walk into your bookstore and you'd like to have、uh, something without dragons, something that is, <laughs> you know, quote unquote, could happen in the wor- real world. You know, I think I think that that's what people mostly mean by literary fiction. Yeah,、um, sure. Realistic fiction, if you wanna if you wanna go differently, which again begs the question of like a lot of these books have like strings of coincidences that would never happen in the real world. Is it really realistic? Thank you.、Um, Thank you. You know how much fantasy are you doing? Michael makes that point. Like all fiction is fantasy, but、mm-hmm. what I'm using as is no dragons, no spaceships, just here. Yeah. Well, I mean, for that, then you just listen to the daily news. Sure. Right, and、yeah. have lovely conversations with your friends and your family and your loved ones. Um. That's all, quote unquote, real life. What do you go to literature for? You know, do you go to literature to step away from your day to day life? That is precisely the function of fantasy, as Tolkien describes it: escape, to recover, recovery, a clear view. What you were saying, not just that you're going to attack the dragon, but how are you going to face it? To then return. To your daily life, refreshed with this new knowledge, or just the reminder that the world is a wonderful place, that there are、mm-hmm. fantastical things in the world. Tell me, explain to me the mystery of how something as big as the tip of my little finger becomes a cornstalk that's seven feet tall. Yeah, sure. Biologists can tell me the biological mechanisms by which all this takes place. It's a miracle to me. How how did how did the biology all get set up in the first place? Are you a Terry Pratchett fan, Marilyn? Oh, love it! That's another podcast I want to do. I、someday. feel like <laughs> this this is going right into Terry Pratchett Terry Pratchett land, where there is no one like Terry Pratchett for making me appreciate the magic of the world. You know, like appreciate just、mm-hmm. how magical living is. Yeah, yeah. He he was one who started slow, but he really ramped up. And, yeah.、Uh, my one of my favorite. Quotes of about this very topic, you know, in Hogfather, where、um, I'm not going to quote it word for word, but、um, Death, who is anthropomorphized in the way you might expect, you know,、mm-hmm. nine feet tall, with wearing the black robe with the skull face and the scythe and all the rest of it, 
has a daughter by means I can't explain at this point, adopted, but still, she does take on some of his qualities. So they've just rescued the world. And, you know, Susan is the daughter and, and she's saying, all right, I'm not stupid. I know what you're saying, that human beings need fantasy. And Death says, you mean like little pink pills? No. Humans <laughs> need fantasy so that they can imagine things that are not yet real. How else can they come about? Things like justice, mm -hmm. mercy. You know, he says, take the whole world, grind it down, sift it down in the finest power, and then show me one atom or molecule of justice. And yet human beings act as though it is a real thing. And Susan says, well, of course, we'd have to. Otherwise, what's the point? And Death says, my point exactly. Fantasy is where the falling angel meets the rising ape. It's where you learn that things are not perfect, and yet there is a way to aspire to make them better. Wow. And if you can't imagine it, then you can't bring it about. That's an excellent note to end the serious discussion on, unless you have anything else, David. <laughs> yeah, like, boom, like, right, like, gotta love Terry mic Pratt. drop. All mic right, drop that mic. Marilyn, I want to give you one piece of information that you're going to blind react to. All right. They've recast Adar in season two. No, I do that. Oh, well, then never, well, I'm just going to cut it. <laughs> <laughs> give us your hot take, the... Um... I don't know. I mean, I don't know Charles Hazelden. I think that's the actor who's to replace him. I think so. There's all kinds of, you know, rumors about he wanted more money than they were willing to pay him, yada, yada, the usual kinds of stuff. So, I don't know that we'll ever really know right. the full story of why. Um, I suspect that Adar was not going to survive past the second season, to be perfectly honest. I, I agree. I, but I remember you and I, when you came on the podcast while David was off in the Misty Mountains. Mm-hmm. We both loved the character. I mean, we were both enamored yeah. with this uh, this morally ambiguous character within this series, and the way that he challenged Galadriel, and the way that he sort of called out the Noldor yes. and their nonsense. I mean, is the Silmarillion yes. just Noldor propaganda anyway? I mean, who knows? <laughs> I think the Silmarillion was was a very deep and painful exploration on the part of the Elvish scribes who wrote it down, and I like that. Um, the showrunners did bring that up in that one wonderful line when Galadriel is trying to convince Saubrand to take up his kingship and fight. He, she says, let us redeem both our bloodlines. <laughs> yep. And that's the first time I've ever heard a Noldor express the idea that the Noldor needed to redeem themselves in some fashion. It wasn't Maglor when he was with Maedros. Wasn't he sort of remorseful about the direction of the Noldor? I mean, wasn't he like, hey, maybe we can go back to Valinor and repent? And Major says, I don't think so. I don't think that there's any way to do that. Right. And I mean, you could argue that um, he accepted that pronouncement and said, okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. We're doomed. But I just mean, I, I think that there is some kind of Noldor remorse in, at some point. In oh, the absolutely. Remorse, for sure. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they would have sat down and wrote out an entire thesis about, you know, what they did wrong and why, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I ever heard either of them say we were wrong to take the oath. Right, right. 
that's, I guess, sort of implied. The thing that I love so much about that, which was also first pointed out to me in, in one of the Prancing Pony podcast episodes, if you think about when the fellowship is about to set off from Rivendell, and Elrond says, no oath is laid upon you to go any further than you want. And Gimli is all, oh, well, but, you know, oath may strengthen quaking heart. And Elrond replies, or break it. Do not look too far ahead down the road. And it was suddenly pointed out to us mm. that Elrond was the one who saw how the oath had affected these two elves, who basically raised him and his brother. Right. And the, the conflict and the, and the remorse and the grief and all the rest of it. So, just that very personal upfront thing. And then you look at the larger context of the whole story and say, yeah, take that oath. <laughs> look what that led to. Yeah. So, suddenly, Elrond's hesitation to lay an oath on anyone just gets this rich, multiplied right. three-dimensionality, four-dimensionality right. that it didn't have before. I mean, you're kind of wondering, why does Elrond not think oaths are a good idea. Aren't oaths part of that whole, you know, Viking culture, whatever? Well, he's had a different life experience. And that's just amazing to me. Yeah. So this is the last like super dense passage of the Silmarillion for a while. I mean, we still have a Balerion and its realms coming up. <laughs> but this is the last time we're gonna do like begot, 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 begot right in a row. So thank you so much, Marilyn, for helping us through that, because it is, this is, this is the challenge. This is the hurdle of getting into the Silmarillion, is getting your bearings in this world with a lot of names, with a whole lot of names to remember, um, with a whole lot of lore to remember, with um, a lot of details that you don't know where to fit into the framework yet, if this is mm -hmm, your first mm -hmm. time reading. So this was a great conversation, Marilyn. We went way longer than intended, because we always do, because we have a lot I was to just say. Saying. What else is new? <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think the value <laughs> of this <laughs> is when people read it and then they go back to Lord of the Rings and they read passages like the description of uh, Theoden's charge and he looked like Orome in the dawn of uh, the beginning of the world. Now you know who Orome is. Right. And why that's such a powerful statement, because you're talking about a Valar right. who was a hunter, who rode through the forests, who was the first person to locate the elves, who was a majestic figure. And this is how they're describing this final charge of the king of the Rohirrim. Again, you're moving from two dimensions to three, or maybe four. Yeah. It's it's worth it's worth the work, and you know you're talking to somebody who at ten years old was reading Dolores' book of Greek myths and having it read to her and just absolutely loving it. So <laughs> <laughs> names of deities and their and well, you know what I did not do that and I still loved the Silmarillion. So I will say so. There's the hope. First time, there's hope for everybody. <laughs> the first time it was hard to get through. It's always sure. hard the first time. The second time I. Uh, I enjoyed it, but and I got the gist of it, but I wasn't uh, fully there. I think the third time I was finally like, oh, there's drama here. I can read between the lines here. 
and right. see the drama and see the human characters. And I use human in a, a sapient way rather than a, a species way because, you know, mm -hmm. elves I'm counting in this too. But I think that it does take a few runs. And I hope that this podcast will help people get to that point faster. I hope so too. I mean, I believe me, I remember the bewilderment in 1977. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> cracking open the Silmarillion after everybody was waiting for it with bated breath and saying, what is this? <laughs> what, 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 excuse me? What? This, what, hmm, how, how do you, how do you know? But sticking with it enough to get to the parts where, okay, it's not, it's not an epic story like Lord of the Rings. It's not a fairy tale like The Hobbit. It's mythology. It's an annal. It's telling stories of adventure with not as much, you know, personal perspective as we were accustomed to in the other works, but it's foundational for those works. And that's, that can be the bridge. All right, Marilyn, that's a great place to end it. Uh, thank you again so much for being with us. And I hope we can have you again once we have the elves in the picture. Anytime. Anytime, guys. Very good. Well, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Marilyn. Okay. Take care. Happy New Year. And to you. And we're back from our interview with Marilyn Arpukila. Went super long and went super well because I always have a fun time and 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 a fascinating time speaking with her, especially about Tolkien. We're so lucky that she emailed us. Uh, I think, what, what was it? It was about the uh, TCBS that she helped to I clarify. Know. So, yeah. If we're, it weren't we're for really Barovians, yes. would we ever have heard <laughs> exactly. from her? And, and where would we be with this podcast if we didn't have Marilyn? So, yeah. It's true. Really great conversation. It's true. All right. Well, David, let's get into our listener feedback. Sounds good. We have a bunch of feedback from the previous episode we as well do. as some for this episode. Thank you guys for all your feedbacks. Yes, thank you so much. Again, you can write into LOTR at thelorehounds.com if you want to write in for next month. So Amy C. says, Dear David and John, thank you for a great show today. I really enjoyed listening to it. It was well put together and very accessible intro to The Silmarillion. I had a few thoughts to share that may or may not be helpful regarding the similarities of the creation story of the Bible and Tolkien's creation myth. You said that you were surprised that Tolkien as a Catholic would have designed a world where the high God creates delegates. And I really like the comment about God not needing this, but wanting it as a community. But I just wanted to let you know that it's a pretty standard Christian worldview. It's called the Divine Council, and it's made oh. up of various types of angelic beings and, post-Christ, human saints. What was unique for him was to equate his Divine Council with certain mythological gods from other mythologies. David, what do you think about that? That's very cool. Uh, I, that's not something... I, I don't think I'm familiar with the, the term Divine Council. I mean... I do come from a, a Judeo-Christian background and and some involvement in in Christian churches, but um, that's not ever part of anything that I learned about. So that's interesting that that's reflected there. I mean, it's obvious that it's reflected there in Tolkien's creation. So it makes sense from that regard. It's interesting that you you got to have committees and committee meetings, and even in heaven, you've got to go to sort of go through the bureaucratic process. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, second point. You guys said something to the effect that Eru, or God, made both good and evil so people could have a choice. But this is not something that Tolkien as a Catholic would have believed. 
I'm not Catholic, I'm Orthodox actually, but the teaching of all the Christian denominations is that evil does not actually exist as an entity. God most certainly did not create it because it's a non-entity. Evil is described by early Catholic writers like Augustine as a twisting. Only God can create. So what evil is, is a perversion, a twisting, a bending of what was originally created good. To step away from the creator of life is considered a step into death, Mm. and evil is a step into non-being. You can see this with Melkor. He wants to create things his own way, but can't. And so he perverts what was already created good. He takes the music and makes it discord, which is a form of this non-being. So in both the biblical story and the Idolindale, so far as it follows it, evil is not a creation of God Eru. It is a chaotic distortion that disorders the original goodness and beauty. What is given by God for the sake of free will is not the creation of evil itself. It is simply the choice to go this route. It's the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge to twist good into something warped. You see this with the orcs as well. Melkor could not create them, so he had to abuse and twist good elves into something broken. This was some great feedback. Yeah, this is a really on-point analysis. very illuminating. I, I hadn't considered uh, any of these points. And it uh, really makes sense, because when you read the Aina Lindale, and there is this talk about, you know, Melkor going off on his own, right, he's not creating something and bringing it back. He's twisting the music that's already there. And so that makes a lot of sense from that aspect. And where does he go to begin having evil thoughts? It's the void. It's nothingness. Void. Right. And so that makes total sense. I really appreciate this feedback, because it clarifies things for me. Right, for sure. Okay, one last point. You'd said that Eru is distant in the stories, but he's actually active in the events throughout the books. Tolkien hid him in there quietly and subtly in all sorts of places. There's a book that identified all these places, but I'll mention a few, which you may already know yourself. Yeah, we've we've actually talked about this with uh, Marilyn, how um, I, I'm not going to list all these here because we're uh, already going long, but it is very true that a lot of these things where like who finds the ring and when certain coincidences happen there's sort of this idea of divine providence that is present and so this was something that i i completely agree with you on and i'm sorry that i misled you amy (laughs) thinking that uh eru did nothing i just meant eru is not part of the corporeal world right eru is outside creation right right and it's interesting to see some of these uh, places where Eru is present and, and how much more. Because I think when I first read Lord of the Rings back, whatever, in my you know early, middle, teenage years, I don't think I was ever, I would have ever detected that. Yeah. But, you know, subsequent readings, year in, year out, you know, reading some more outside of this stuff. It's like you get that extra cool layer, like, oh, whoa, like Tolkien is doing this whole other thing that wasn't obvious. Uh, when I've, you know, as I've been reading it. And now as I'm widening my point of view, I can really see the structure of, of what he's doing there. Yeah. Uh, lastly, I just wanted to note that Amy took issue with us saying that, uh, me saying, I'll take credit, uh, that the fire, the, the secret flame would be Eru himself, like the Holy Spirit is God himself, according to Catholicism. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a speculation on my part. So that could be wrong. Right. All right, next up, we've got Peter S. Peter says, I love the Silmarillion podcast. One slight corrective about the ye language and not Kanye. Uh, As a Catholic, Tolkien would have read 
the Douay Reims version, the Douay Reims version of the Bible, the King James version was very definitely seen as the Protestant Bible. So Catholics used their own. To be sure, the Douay Reims had its share of these and thous, like the King James version. Though I don't think either of them was uh, ye heavy. Also, Tolkien would have had to be familiar with the King James version because Britain was an officially Anglican country, and the King James Version found its way into a lot of public speeches and literature. But Catholics always saw it as the Protestant Bible. That was the source of a lot of church-state controversies in the U.S. in the 19th and 20th centuries, when state, state legislatures required the use of the King James Version and Catholics' objective. But that's another story. Anyway, keep up the great work. Peter. Wow. Peter going deep on the Bible there. We're getting educated on Catholicism tonight. Seriously, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm glad because it's it's really uh, helping me. I'm not a Catholic, and uh, it's been very helpful to see some of these nuances arise as we go through. So thank you very much, Peter. I'll be sure to keep that in mind going forward. Yeah, I know that there are, I'm mean, aware that there are different translations of Bibles, and I never really got into the um, the variances between them, but that's really interesting about it reminds me of uh, the life of Brian Monty Python, right? Like, what's a sign and what's a portent, and like, what is? How does God <laughs> make them, you know, himself known to the world? A shoe. It's you know, we must take off his our left shoes. You know, it's like no, this book, no that book, and you can see where a lot of strife is is created out of arguing over whose interpretation is the correct one. I am one of the weirdos, like Aaron identifies himself, who has read. The Bible cover to cover as a book. Wow! And wow! It it was interesting. I mean, like yeah. it, was, it was an interesting read. Uh, it it was just kind of a, a dense piece. But I deliberately did not choose the King James version to do uh -huh. the uh, the New Testament with because I knew it would be just a lot. Um, and yeah, I I still don't want to read the King James version. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up is Matt, who says, question in a bit, but I just wanted to say I'm new to the Lorehounds as of Rings of Power. Also, a White Lotus fan. You guys make me appreciate that show so much more. We usually binge Disney stuff as a family over Christmas, but now I'm seriously thinking I should binge and or with alternating binge of your podcast on it. Do well, that's it. a great idea, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great holiday to me. I need to re-binge and or myself. Same here. As soon as I finish Clone Wars, it's going back right. on. Good, good. All right, Matt continues. I don't care if you read anything of me on air. You can if you want. Well, you're here, Matt, now. Yeah. The short <laughs> version you. of my question I have about Lord of the Rings is, how do the people, humans, elves, dwarves, actually know about the deity pantheon? How do they know it? How well do they know it? Interesting. So I actually went back and forth with Matt in a couple emails about this. Oh, Okay. Uh, yeah, no, we chatted a little bit, and cool. uh, Matt, Matt's a nice person. But basically, what you're reading here is the histories of the elves. And so these elves have actually, we'll get into this as we go further, these elves have actually lived alongside the Valar. They've met the Valar. So at least some elves, and a large portion of the elves, not just like a few, have actually met the Valar. And so... The elves have pretty much universally accepted that the Valar are real. Men, it depends. Some of them have directly seen the Valar. Some of them have not. Most of them have not. And that's why you see less worship of the Valar among them. And 
also you have Eru being the true one god. So the Valar don't really encourage worship of themselves anyway. It's more worship of Eru that's uh, held in high regard. And then dwarves were created by Aule, which we'll get into later, and they're created by one of the Valar. So they have much more experience with him than with any of the other Valar. So they're more concerned with him. I think they're aware that other Valar exist, but they kind of just don't care. All right, we're going to wrap up with Steve G. Steve says, I've been a listener since day one and thoroughly enjoyed your podcast and insights. I thought we're supposed to scrub all this like really nice, you know, kudos and adulation. Well, I didn't have time. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. This isn't a deep lore question or comment, but I wanted to share an incredible discovery. There's an entire Lord of the Rings holiday album titled Christmas in Middle Earth, and it's just fabulous. What? I'm going to need a link for this. It's become a staple it, it, of my he, household. He sent a link, so don't worry. I'm putting right. it in the show notes. Uh, it's become a staple in my household around Christmas and gets regularly mixed in with the rest of our holiday music. It's a super fun and catchy parody album with a surprising amount of clever references. Apologies for when the chorus from Christmas with Denethor... my daddy wants me dead this christmas he doesn't think i've earned the family business inevitably gets stuck in your head in any case just wanted to share keep up the good work and merry and pippin christmas lorehounds (laughs) thanks steve that's awesome i am a big um uh vince uh why am i blanking his name the charlie brown christmas stuff that's like always christmasy to me but i may have to dip into this playlist and and pull out a couple of um songs from this album that's super fun. Thanks, Steve, for a great closer for this episode. I think uh, for an episode that's coming out on New Year's Eve, we needed something holiday-y. That's true. Fair enough. Yeah, so thank you. All right, some quick programming notes. First of all, we want to thank our Patreon subscribers, all of you, for another great month. Thank you again. Uh, it's been amazing launching this year. We're really grateful for all of you, but especially uh, our lore masters, who I'll read off quickly. So our lore masters are Michael G, Mark H, and Samartian. Thank you again. That's our highest tier. That is basically just we put there in case anybody really wanted to go nuts and support us. And I just can't believe anyone took it. So thank you. And thank you to all our (laughs) patrons. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for a great year. Uh, This has been uh, awesome. Uh, We've got a lot going on. We're excited to grow with the Bald Move Network into 2023. Um, we've got more shows on the horizon, uh, and stay tuned for those. And what's next for Silmarillion stories, John? Silmarillion stories. So here's the reading for next month. You are going to read, if you want to be with us, of the beginning of days. It is chapter one of the Quintus Silmarillion. Now, when I say Quintus Silmarillion, that's a little confusing because it's a subpart of the Silmarillion. But Quenta Silmarillion is the histories of the Silmarils. It's the history of the Silmarillion. So before this, we were talking about like the creation of the world before elves existed. Now we're going to get into the actual beginning of time and the coming of the elves. So this first chapter, there's not a ton of plot, but it's important. So let's do chapter one of the beginning of days from the Quenta Silmarillion. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. All right, sounds good. And that should be coming out towards the end of January, probably that last weekend-ish, right around there, 28th or something. Yeah. We'll keep you posted on this month on the Lorehounds. Absolutely. All right, John. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Marilyn is always a great conversation to have and uh, great feedback. Remember, L-O-T-R at thelorehounds.com. Check us out on uh, patreon.com slash thelorehounds. 
Join us on the Bald Move Discord, not Melkor's Discord, our Discord. <laughs> Link in the show notes and at baldmove.com. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.